a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. In this podcast, we talk about what's happening in the world, like any sorts of issue, political, otherwise, climate, war, and we break it down and explain what's going on. Well, it's not me that does that because I would not know. I know a little bit, but nowhere near like this gentleman that joins me and hosts this podcast, Dr. Keith Suter, who is an expert in global affairs, politics, and just can pretty much talk to you about any any topic related to overseas. And today we are talking about the new climate war. So obviously, Keith, this has been on the agenda for a very, very long time for a lot of people, climate change, mm. global warming, whatever you want to call it. But there's a new phase. Yep. So it's a, it's a new era. So the, the author, so the book is called The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. And the author is a guy called Michael Mann, who is a professor of atmospheric science at Penn State University in the United States and um, has been heavily involved with the climate change debate for well over 30 years. And his argument is that we're moving away from people denying that there is a problem with climate change to now turning the, the debate on to, well, how can they block uh, measures to try to avert climate change. So what he is saying in the book, and he fleshes it out in great detail, is one, that we have to disregard the doomsayers. So there are a number of people who just simply say, it's all too late. The The earth is finished. The Black Mountain Project, for example, in Great Britain, uh, one of the authors of that was an environmental campaigner, made a name for himself in his environmental work, and then reached a point of saying, it's all too late. So he's moved his family across the west coast of, of Ireland, the Gaeltacht, and they're growing their own food, they're recycling things, and they're just taking the view now they just want to try to live through the impending crisis. So this author, Michael Mann, is saying, look, disregard those doomsayers who say, look, it's all too late. You've got to find ways of keeping going and you've got to keep the debate going on climate change. It is not too late. So that's number one. Number two, we need to recognise that we're getting a new leadership from children. So the new generations coming through are fighting tooth and nail to save their planet, and they have a moral authority and clarity in their message. And so what he is saying is, listen to the children. They're seeing their way through this in a way that, the older people are a bit jaded, uh, but the, the children are on the right thing. And we see that now with the groups like Extinction Rebellion, for example. And then thirdly, he emphasised the importance of, of education. He makes the comment that when it comes to education, don't waste your time on the climate change deniers. They are people who are not going to change their viewpoint. And indeed, it's very difficult for them to be able to do so because they've dug their heels in. He's saying, though, that there are a lot of people in the middle who are not yet committed to climate change denial. They are the people that we have to target our education campaigns at and try to draw them into the battle. I might add a, a lesson that I had um, from the years of campaigning in the peace movement is that you've got to give people room to manoeuvre to be able to let them get out of the corner in which they've painted themselves and then to join you 
without saying to them, congratulations, you've now come to your senses. I agree with that. If you belittle them or carry on as though you had that point to prove and you were right, they're never going to come across. That's right. Just be gracious and let them go. That's right. And that's the problem with a lot of political movements, I reckon. Oh, absolutely. Particularly with politicians, it's always so polarised. So uh, when you look back, for example, the nuclear issue that I was involved with back in the 1980s and the fear about a nuclear war, people did change their mind, but you had to be careful that you were accommodating to them and you didn't just suddenly say, well, congratulations, you've come to your senses. You just simply welcomed them as people who joined the campaign and you don't refer to their previous scope of denial. And this fellow is saying something pretty much the same. He's saying, look, you've got this middle ground when it comes to public opinion, aim to educate that middle ground. You're never going to win over those climate change deniers. Okay, uh, that may be the case. My view is that you give them room to manoeuvre themselves out of the corner. My view is that, and this is a bit of a challenge uh, to those of us who are in education, people don't think their way through to a new way of living. They live their way through to a new way of thinking. In other words, that um, education itself is not going to be sufficient. It is the changing of their experiences which helps them to realise they've got to change their ways. The standard example of that, smoking campaigns, right? So I come across medical practitioners who smoke. They are the best educated people on the dangers of tobacco, but they're still smoking. And yet once they get that diagnosis for cancer, they may well just suddenly change and stop smoking. Um, and so my view then is that when it comes to climate change, we can expect people to change their views, even if they are climate change deniers, but change their views when their experiences change. For example, they have a nice beachfront property, which then gets washed away by the <laughs> eroding beaches and the rising tides. Suddenly, they will say, oh, well, I'm beginning to take climate change more seriously, particularly if they can't get good insurance cover. You know, there are parts of the United States that are now uninsurable. Mm. Insurance companies like in Florida are saying, sorry, we just can't risk. Oh, a lot of places in Australia that are prone to bushfires as well, Keith, that's have right. that same yeah. issue. So I, I think I, I agree with them that education, education, education is correct, but I think you also can expect with climate change deniers that as their experiences change, so they also will change. So just to uh, summarise, one, disregard the doomsayers. Two, uh, listen to the children. Three, educate, educate, educate. And four, changing the system requires systemic change. And this is, for me, very interesting because a lot of this book, and it's a large, large book, he looks at the way in which uh, companies have been very skillful in reducing debates, be it on, on cans of soft drink or whatever, down to personal decisions. And this author, Michael Mann, argues that you've also got to change the system so that we need policies that will incentivize the shift away from fossil fuel burning towards a clean, green, global economy. It's no good just having a debate about, well, what car are you going to drive, for example, or what food should you eat? Should we, for example, make everybody a vegan, vegetarian, no meat, etc.? So what he is saying is that sometimes you need really big change and that can only come from government action. Now, my own feeling is that when it comes to moving away from fossil fuels, 
Clearly, you can't give up on coal immediately. Coal, particularly in the Australian context, is too important. But what you do need is a program of transition. And this, again, is where politicians have let us down. The standard example for that is what happened in West Virginia. The Obama administration closed down a lot of the coal industries but didn't put in place transition strategies which enable the the unemployed workers to find jobs elsewhere. And then in 2016, Donald Trump comes along, promises to revive the coal industry. In fact, he's not been able to revive the coal industry because market forces are against it. Market forces are saying we're moving on from coal. But the role of the government really under Obama and probably even under Bush Jr. would have been to put in transition programs to enable people, therefore, to be retrained in one way or another. So there's still scope for politicians. If they're going to make changes, like, for example, gradually running down the coal mines, you've got to make sure you're looking after the coal miners. You just can't turn them you know, into the redundancy queue. This is why in Germany, for example, uh, they're now moving away from the burning of coal, particularly in what used to be West Germany. In East Germany, it continues to because they don't know what to do with the workers. But in West Germany, they slowly phased out the coal, but they did it very carefully because they could remember back in the 1930s when you had unemployed coal miners, they were the ones recruited by the Nazi party because they're, they're hungry and unemployed. Yeah. So you've got to find good transition strategies. And on that note as well, in the Middle East, a lot of terrorists or would-be terrorists are young and employed people yeah. with no hopes, no aimless, aimlessly existing, you know, yep. easy to recruit, radicalise, give them a purpose, give them food. This is why I'm forever talking about you know, the whole issue of work, perhaps a universal basic income, whatever. That's a subject for another day. We've looked at it a bit so far. But there, there is this whole question of work. You know, when people talk to me about, you know, living in a society without work, I am just get very worried because I think the work gives people something to do. It gives them a sense of connection with the local community. It's not just about earning money. It gives them a, a pride of purpose in society, etc. Problem is that politicians don't want to get into that sort of thing. This is what worries me. We have these major challenges and the politicians are just looking for the quick fixes. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr Keith Suda. We're talking about the new climate war, Keith. And this is... Well, do you know, as much as, you know, you are not a doomsdayer, but you are, a, and you're absolute realist, but you do like to draw attention to things that should be on our radar and things that we should be thinking about that are happening in the world. And there is a new climate war, like, on our doorstep, essentially. Yeah, so the old climate war was denial. And the argument now is that people who've carried out that denial generally are having difficulty still sustaining that argument. Because you are getting the melting of the polar ice caps. You are getting the rising of sea levels. So what they're now doing is changing the debate over to the whole issue of, well, how are you going to achieve it? You know, what are the methods you're going to employ? And, of course, as soon as they say we're going to close down the coal industry, going to do it overnight, well, that's when people start to say, well, we don't want to do that. You We've got to keep people that. employed. Yeah. People need employment. So you've got to find a way, and this is this guy tries to provide ideas about how we can make greater use of, of solar energy, et cetera. And so what this book is, is very useful in is looking at the 
or the source of alternatives that we could actually use um, and develop in this. Um, I might just, uh, by the way, uh, talk about what he calls the inactivists. So they're not climate change deniers. He calls them inactivists. So they're going now for a softer denial. And so they, they've got a number of Ds, downplaying, deflecting, dividing, delaying, and despair-mongering. So downplaying is simply to say, well, there are many other issues that we've got to address at the moment. We've got to focus on those. Deflecting is to try to push the attention into other uh, directions. Dividing, obviously, is, is um, uh, wedge politics. In other words, you get people to have a long debate over whether or not we should all become vegetarians. That's a good way of dividing activists. And then delaying, and then despair-mongering. So the despair-mongering are those people who just say, look, it's all too hard, totally beyond me. Um, I'm just going to continue to live the way that I do. So he tries to address all of those issues, which was interesting. And he says that progress is being made. Um, He talks about some of the uh, organizations that were set up uh, in the United States to to deny the problem of climate change, say there is no climate change. And it's interesting, the number of those that are now laying off staff or who have just been entirely made redundant. So there is some good news there. And so the debate has changed. That's why it says it's a new war. It's not the old war about, you know, whether or not there is a problem called climate change. People do agree that there is now a problem. I obviously get people like Donald Trump who are a bit slow to accept that. But generally, a lot of people are now saying, yes, we agree there is a problem with climate change. The new climate war is now the war on action. What do we actually do to try to save the earth? And so this book looks at a number of issues. So one of the things that he's been doing is talking about a renewable energy. Um, and he says renewables for the first time outcompeted coal in power generation during the first quarter of 2020. That's in the United States. He says in Australia, because he, he visited Australia when he was preparing this book. In Australia, a similar story is underway. Tesla's big batteries are now outperforming fossil fuel generators on both performance and cost. And the state of South Australia is now on its way to being 100% renewable energy. So you've had to have a number of things coming together, alternative ways of generating energy with a wind power or solar power, and then secondly, being able to store that power. The, the big advantage that coal has is it's this baseload capacity. In other words, that they can just keep running and they will always keep the lights on for you. Whereas the problem is that if you're relying on windmills or solar energy, you may, you may not have enough wind or the sun goes down. So you you really need a baseload power supply, and that's coal. The alternative is that you develop big enough batteries. So you store the power and then use it when the wind doesn't blow or the sun isn't shining. And, of course, Tesla has been able to pioneer these giant battery storages. So we're getting improvements in technology. So uh, this the author is saying, look, there are things that can be done, and we need to be more optimistic about all of this and not give in to all the doomsayers who say, you know, we're finished. So his view is that there are things that can be done and we should put a, be putting support 
in for that. But that requires, in the Australian context, politicians who are going to be taking a bigger view of the issue and not just be immediately affected by what's being said on talkback radio or whatever. Pop, exactly right. Popularity, doing things with popularity yeah. and in the moment, you know, willing to take a risk and make build big policies that are really futuristic. And, yeah, my view is that um, politicians often know what to do but not how to get re-elected after they've done it, therefore they don't attempt it. That's, that's a problem of transition. We have to think through ways of transitioning our society. Now, in a sense, the COVID disaster plays into this because we have had to go on a very quick learning curve. One a banking official told me that she said her industry had gone through six years of change in six months. And, of course, you think about the amount of use that we make with Zoom, for example, um, and telehealth, whereby you can get diagnosed over a telephone line. These are big breakthroughs that are occurring because of COVID. So we can uh, change our ways quite quickly once we're obliged to do so. And that's the good news. And he's saying, look, let's spend more time just publicising that good news and just looking at what we've been able to achieve. And so he's saying important lessons here have to do with the role of science and fact-based discourse in decision-making, the dangers of ideologically driven denial, deflection and doomism, the roles played by individual action and government policy, the threats posed by special interests hijacking our policy machinery, the fragility of our societal infrastructure and the distinct challenges of satisfying the needs of nearly 8 billion and growing people on a finite planet. So he's coming up with a number of um, ideas that, that are worth following through, uh, particularly, of course, what we've looked at, the whole issue of um, renewable energies, improvement in battery technology, etc., and, of course, once you start to look, then you start to find. And so suddenly you end up with people who are saying, well, perhaps we will be able to find new ways of operating. And so he says here, it appears we may indeed be turning the corner and there's just one reason to be optimistic. And so he's trying to, in this book, provide an optimistic um, message to reply to the people who are trying to delay the onset of the activities. So, as I say, it's a very useful textbook for us to, to follow our way through. And what he is saying is that we need to have behavioural change incentivized by appropriate government policy, intergovernmental agreements, and technological innovation. They are the four key factors. Behavioural change incentivized by appropriate government policy, Intergovernmental agreements, like the Paris Agreement of uh, five years ago, six years ago, and technological innovation. So what he's trying to do then is to provide a message of, of optimism at a time when so many people are just very pessimistic. So it's a breath of fresh air to read the book. There you go. So highly recommended. Absolutely. The New Climate War. Thank you.
listener.